This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a blog called uh, May It Please the Court. And for some of our guests who are in Minnesota, it's sunny Southern California. And I write a blog called uh, Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. Well, uh, in a case decided this week, uh, Philip Morris, USA versus Williams, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of uh, a tobacco giant in a punitive damages suit. Philip Morris contested an earlier Oregon Supreme Court decision upholding the jury's verdict. Punitive damages, of course, are money that are awarded uh, in order to uh, punish a defendant or deter bad behavior and and, uh, repetition of bad behavior. Well, it was a closely divided Supreme Court, Bob, with a vote of 5-4 to that overturned a $79.5 million punitive damages award won by the widow of longtime smoker against Philip Morris. Justices Robert Salito, Kennedy, and Souter joined Justice Breyer in the majority, and Justices Thomas, Scalia, Stevens, and Ginsburg were all in dissent. And the high court ruled that the huge damages award was unconstitutional because it was uh, intended to punish the tobacco company for harming not just the plaintiff, but other smokers as well. At least that's the best, uh, as I understand it, but hopefully our guests will um, help us understand that a little bit better. But the court ruled that the uh, company, a unit of Altria Group Incorporated, could not be punished for harm to other smokers in this case involving Mayola Williams, an Oregon woman whose husband died of lung cancer in 1997 after smoking Marlboros for more than 40 years. Well, Jesse Williams, and as far as I know of no relation, uh, died of lung cancer in 1997 at the age of 67. He had smoked about two packs a day of Phyllis Morris-made Marlboros, as you mentioned, for about 45 years. His widow, Mrs. Williams, argued that the jury award was appropriate because it punished Philip Morris for a decade-long massive or decades-long massive market-directed fraud that misled people into thinking that cigarettes were not dangerous or addictive. Well, so today we're going to talk about uh, the uh, tobacco industry, big business, punitive damages, the Supreme Court, uh, and we have a, a great lineup of guests to help us talk about this. Our first guest is... Uh, Michael Gerhardt, we'd like to welcome him to the show. He is the Samuel Ash Professor of Constitutional Law and a Professor of Law and has joined the UNC School of Law faculty during the summer of, uh, after teaching for almost 15 years at the College of William and Mary, taught law there. He was a consultant to the White House on the appointment of Stephen Breyer to the Supreme Court and has consulted with many senators and staff on constitutional issues ranging relating to the various appointments during President Bill Clinton's impeachment proceedings. Uh, Mr. Gerhardt testified uh, as the only joint witness before the House Judiciary Committee, and he worked uh, as CNN's expert on the impeachment process. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hi, thanks for having me. And joining us next is Professor J. David Prince from the William Mitchell College of Law. David is also of counsel to Larson King in Minnesota. During his time at William Mitchell, David has uh, served as vice dean, led the foreign studies program, and taught various courses, including energy law, environmental regulation, natural resources management, products liability law, and public control of land use. 
He is co-editor of Products Liability Prof Blog and a former part-time administrative law judge. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. I'm pleased to be able to join you. And we'd also like to welcome attorney Mark Gottlieb. Mark is the executive director of the Public Health Advocacy Institute at the Northeastern University School of Law in Boston, and he directs its Tobacco Products Liability Project. Mr. Gottlieb has uh, closely followed the tobacco litigation developments in the U.S. and abroad for the last 15 years and directs research funded by the National Cancer Institute into internal tobacco industry documents focusing on the role of lawyers for the industry and what the role they've played in creating smoking and health policies. He co-authored an amicus brief to the U.S. Supreme Court in Philip Morris USA versus Williams, stressing the important role of punitive damages for protecting public health. Welcome to the show, Mark. Pleasure to be here. Well, Michael, let's start with you, and, and let me ask. Uh, people have been uh, looking for guidance from the Supreme Court, uh, or at least clearer guidance from the Supreme Court on the issue of punitive damages. Uh, have they gotten it in this decision? <laughs> well, I'm going to probably end up saying not much. I mean, I, I think that the, the court didn't deal with the, the big question, which has been rather divisive, dealing with the constitutionality of punitive damages. Uh, but instead uh, decided it in a manner, I guess, that's consistent with Chief Justice Roberts' preference the court decides case nar- narrowly. And here they tried to simply make a judgment about whether the jury instructions were appropriate in this case, and they felt that they didn't warn the jury not to uh, apply punitive damages beyond the case in front of them. Uh, how about our other guests? Uh, David, what's your uh, general perspective on, on this decision? I don't think this uh, has made things a whole lot more clear as to what the constitutional limitations on punitive damage uh, awards are. Um, I, I, I doubt anyone uh, would say that this case is likely to be the final word. Um, in fact, the court uh, has before it a, a petition in another in a SUV rollover case that um, they, they may very well take that also uh, involved a punitive damages award. I think the most obvious outcome of this decision is going to be an even greater number of appeals of punitive damages awards on the substantive due process grounds in cases that have already been decided, and there's going to be a lot of arguing among lawyers over jury instructions in upcoming cases. Should we be looking at this case as more of a procedural issue than an issue directed at uh, tobacco? Uh, this is Mark Gottlieb. I, I think that uh, that that's that's that is the case here. This uh, really didn't reach any uh, tobacco-specific issues. I think there was some thought that uh, perhaps this case would offer an opportunity for the court to determine what is excessive when you have uh, uh, um, a, a court that has established, you know, extremely reprehensible conduct that that caused, you know, in this case, fatal injury. Um, and whether that would be an exception to the uh, ratios contemplated in the State Farm v. Campbell case. Uh, and uh, we didn't get any of that. In fact, uh, I think they, they really uh, steered clear of uh, doing anything about the excessiveness uh, uh, or, or constitutional limits of these awards and, and instead seem to have a, a very uncomfortable oral argument around uh, this uh, rejected jury instruction that Philip Morris had wanted, and that's ultimately uh, what this case, uh, um, you know, uh, turned on. Well, what, I mean, isn't the significance for tobacco litigation this whole issue of reprehensibility and, and to the, the extent to which a, a jury can take into consideration 
uh, how a how a product uh, has has a, had an impact on others in the marketplace. And and boy, did they ever do a dance around that? And uh, you know, Justice Ginsburg in her dissent uh, pointed out that you know this isn't going to make a lot of sense on the ground. Basically, I, I think that they indicated that you know the uh, uh, jury cannot. Uh, punish the defendant for harm to non-parties, but they can consider the harm to non-parties in determining you know, how reprehensible the conduct was. And uh, I, I'm really not sure what that's going to mean in terms of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of how jurors are really supposed to think about these things, if it's really going to have much of a difference. It's going to have a difference in the way jury instructions are crafted. It'll make a difference, I think, in terms of uh, the uh, sorts of arguments that can be made in front of the jury around punitive damage. Damages. In, in one case uh, uh, from about five years ago that resulted in a $28 billion punitive damages award against Philip Morris in an individual smoker's case, uh, the, uh, the uh, plaintiff's attorney um, made the argument that, well, for every one of these uh, cases that make it to trial, there's 28,000 that don't, and you should consider that. And uh, in, that, in that instance, the uh, jury seemed to take a, a million-dollar punitive damages and multiplied it by 28,000 to come up with a $28 billion punitive damages award. Clearly, that particular formulaic approach to uh, punitive damages uh, that refers specifically to non-parties is is out the window, but uh, I, I don't think there's going to be a tremendous impact uh, on you know uh, on, on on punitive damages based on on this decision, other than in you know the crafting of jury instructions and and you know specific arguments that are being made to the juries. But it, it seems confusing more. I mean, it seems more confusing than than, than anything. I mean, the, the the idea that the jury can hear the evidence of of impact on non-parties, but can't take that evidence into account, I guess, in, in sort of calculating the, the amount, uh, uh, you know, where does, where does that leave, <laughs> where does that leave juries? Where does that leave jury instructions? Well, and this is Mike Gerhardt. I mean, it strikes me, you know, one thing that might be pertinent to all this is the fact that the court found that uh, the punitive damages award, the award that was made here, um, actually violated the, the due process clause because it was taking of property without due process of law. And so the court, in the sense, is kind of almost, uh, predicating its decision on an understanding of the takings clause and that uh, you can only take property with um, as long as you give due process of law before you take it. And what the court seems to be saying is, well, without giving the instruction and more notice and uh, essentially for the defendant to be able to uh, make a case against the award, uh, they're being unfairly deprived of their property, in this case, money. Well, I don't mean to take the other side of the argument here, but it does seem pretty evident that they had plenty of due to process. I mean, the case lasted for a year or so before it went to trial, and they knew it was coming and had plenty of opportunity to to uh, contemplate that they might get a punitive damages award against them. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're you're both you're both certainly correct on that. Um, but uh, what the court was doing here, I think, was just trying to keep punitive damages from becoming uh, uh, essentially a class action. And I think that that's, that's, that's correct. I, I think that's, you know, theoretically that's correct. How that plays out in practice, um, as, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, is, uh, is anyone's guess. Um, it's probably going to be somewhat confusing. Um, but I think the notion that, uh, you know, you're, as, as a defendant, you're not going to be uh, punished for harm to people who aren't in the courtroom in an individual case um, is it, it is fair, and, and I think that the, the court got it right in that uh, in that respect, and it's it's 
just hard to uh, figure out how this really plays out, how you can determine reprehensibility um, in a vacuum. They obviously said you don't have to determine it in a vacuum, but um, you know whether it's much more than semantics uh, in terms of whether you're punishing for the harm to others or whether you're considering the harm to others in uh, formulating your punishment uh, is, uh, you know, is really what we have here. I actually, I would, I would agree with that. I think it is, I think a class action would be different. I think, in fact, in some ways, it might be uh, an inference that you could draw from the decision that they, what the damages awarded here might be more appropriate to consider in a class action case, partly because the the harm is being the damages are being attributed to harm to people that are just not part of the litigation. So there's no evidence, in a sense, about how much they were harmed and how can the defendant, in a sense, defend against that. That's what I think the court's saying. One of the things that seems to have occurred here that we haven't talked about yet is somewhat of a uh, continental shift from what I learned in law school, which was that, you know, a tort and punitive damages is designed in part to punish the actor in an amount that's going to make a difference to that actor. So... Now we seem to see the Supreme Court shifting punitive damages and tying it to the harm that was caused to the individual plaintiff that's bringing the case as opposed to tying the punitive damages to an amount that is sufficient to punish a company, especially a large company, because a small punitive damages award, like I think this was cut down to $500,000 by the trial court uh, on remand, now isn't really going to make much of a dent uh, to Philip Morris. Well, this is Dave Prince. I think they perhaps have loosened that tie, but I don't think they've, they've broken it all together. Uh, and as the others have indicated, I, you know, this, this kind of evidence about harm to non-parties is still admissible. And, uh, but it's admissible, the court tells us, in order to assess how reprehensible the defendant's conduct was, which is one of the guideposts, one of the criteria a jury can look at to decide how big the punitive award ought to be. They just cannot... Uh, the majority opinion says use it for purpose, use that information or that evidence for purposes of directly punishing the defendant, and that is a nuance, as Justice Stevens said, that eludes me. <laughs> and, uh, um, and Justice Ginsburg, I think, said essentially the same thing. So, as, as the others have indicated, um, it's going to be a real trick to, to craft your instructions that make this distinction sufficiently clear. I think, as a practical matter, the the real impact is that, that the majority opinion seems to say that if there's a significant risk, that was Breyer's phraseology, a significant risk that the jury's not clear about this distinction, then they may apply the wrong constitutional standard in deciding the punitive award, and, and that's what courts have to assure doesn't happen. If the jury, uh, if there's a significant risk that they got it wrong, uh, then that is a due process violation. So I think it, it does add a new dimension to the substantive due process aspects that we have seen over the last decade or so, beginning with the BMW versus Gore, and then further elaborated on four years ago in the State Farm versus Campbell case. And where exactly um, this will 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 go in the long run, I, I don't think any of us is is certain about. I certainly agree with Mark Gottlieb that we haven't seen the end of punitive damages awards, and I think we haven't seen the end of, of very large punitive damage awards. But this is one more uh, constraint that um, the court has put on a, a jury's way of thinking about punishment. Michael, uh, as a as a uh, constitutional law professor, are you uh, at all, uh, do, do you read anything in, in the way the, the actors lined up in this decision and with, with the way the justices lined up? Uh, well, there, I guess a few things you can read into it. Um, 
it's it's not exactly the the coalitions um, one might expect if you sort of just use relatively simplistic sort of stereotypes about how people will vote together. You've got John Roberts, Samuel Alito, Anthony Kennedy, David Souter, and Stephen Breyer on one side, with Ginsburg, Scalia, Stevens, and Thomas on the other. It's not exactly a, a split you typically see. Um, the case also presents, an, uh, uh, I guess, a rather odd issue. Maybe that's the best way I could put it. Uh, because what is sort of in the background of this case is whether or not the court's willing to recognize some substantive procedural process uh, some substantive uh, due process limits to punitive damages. Now, this is a court, some of whose justices really hate substantive due process. Uh, they don't support it in other contexts, let's say like abortion, uh, but they might be willing to support it in this context, and that raises an interesting challenge both for them and for the, for the future. Well, it, it, I mean, Justice Thomas is saying this isn't a constitutional issue at all, right? Right. He may be consistent on that. I'm not sure um, whether everyone else would be quite as consistent. Yeah, in some ways, I think Stevens is is the most interesting here because he was in uh, State Farm versus Campbell six three majority, but he dissents here, basically saying that he thought the Oregon Supreme Court had properly applied uh, the guidance that the U.S. Supreme Court had given previously, and he thought that that uh, they got it right and they ought to be sustained in this particular case. We're going to be looking now at the various uh, revision committees for jury instructions across the various states to send them back to the drawing board? Well, this is uh, Dave Prince again. Uh, some states will surely have to amend their jury instructions. Uh, Minnesota, where I am, for example, will almost certainly change its pattern jury instruction on punitive damages, which uh, which have just been revised uh, just last year. Um, but as they're currently written, they talk about punishing for the deliberate disregard for the rights and safety of others. And uh, in using that phraseology of others uh, throughout the instructions, I think a jury could easily be led to punish, directly punish defendants uh, in the case for harm to non-parties in a way that the Philip Morris Court said uh, can't, cannot be done. So I, I think that certainly uh, where I am, uh, this will result in some revisions in the jury instructions, and I would guess that would be the case in uh, many, if not most, states. What are you going to? What do you recommend to lawyers that are trying punitive cases in the next for several months that don't have the benefit of the revision uh, to jury instructions? Well, if I'm uh, a plaintiff's lawyer, I think I might be a little bit more careful about. Uh, First of all, how I argue my case in closing, uh, maybe be a little bit more careful about what I say to the jury in terms of, um, you know, who they should be trying to punish. And then um, I, 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 I guess I wouldn't hazard a, a, a generalization about that because much would depend upon whether or not you've got pattern jury instructions and what they say. If I'm the defense lawyer, um, I'm going to argue that the uh, you know the jury be very carefully instructed about this with uh, cautionary limiting instructions about how they can consider this evidence that's come into the record about harm to other parties. And then when I'm all done, I'm probably going to appeal a case anyway if I lose. It's time for us to take a short break. We return. We'll get some final thoughts from our guests on this very interesting topic. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. 
From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Did you know that Legal Talk Network podcasts are also available as CLE? Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's clecenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at mayhavepleasethecourt.com, likewise Robert Ambrogi's blog at legalline.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. We're talking about the Supreme Court's decision uh, February 20th, striking down punitive damages against tobacco maker Philip Morris. Joining us is Michael Gerhardt, professor of constitutional law at UNC School of Law, Professor David J. David Price, Professor William Mitchell, College of Law, and Mark Gottlieb, Executive Director of the Public Health Advocacy Institute at Northeastern University School of Law here in Boston. Uh, Mark, I wonder if we could just turn back to this issue uh, uh, of tobacco litigation. I mean, I know earlier in the program you said this is kind of not really a tobacco case, but what what is the uh, impact or significance of this case on tobacco litigation going forward? Well, I, I think, you know, generally it's, it's positive in that, you know, the court had an opportunity to, to shut down punitive damages to say that, you know, you, you, you can only have a one-to-one, a four-to-one, or a nine-to-one uh, ratio of uh, uh, punitive to compensatory damages, depending on, you know, which, which part of the, the um, state farm decision you're looking at. Uh, and they they definitely steered clear of of, of doing that. Um, and the question is um, whether you know they're going to end up taking this on eventually, um, or 
whether the court will um, agree with maybe uh, Justices Thomas and Scalia and say that you know this 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 shouldn't be um, our business. This should this is we should leave this as long as the due process rights of the defendants are uh, uh, you know are um, being respected. Uh, and followed that we don't need to uh, go in and second guess uh, the amounts um, so long as you know these certain these certain standards are met. There's a possibility that that's the case. I mean, we're going to see, I think, a lot of awards go right back up and be appealed to uh, to the high court uh, precisely because there was no further guidance here. And I know that you know many folks in the uh, in the business community, uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and uh, and lots of large corporations who uh, had a stake in this case were, uh, I think, very disappointed. I think Philip Morris was, uh, um, you know, th- was happy they could put in the press release that the uh, that the, uh, the punitive damages was uh, reward was struck. It remains to be seen what's going to happen with this award back at the Oregon Supreme Court, whether it ends up being affirmed that the Supreme, Oregon Supreme Court says, oh, yeah, well, we, we, we see what you said. Uh, the uh, jury instruction that was offered at the trial court was improper, and therefore, um, you know, this, th- this award was valid, whether they reduce it by some amount, which would be some, a somewhat arbitrary treatment, or whether they retry it for punitive damages. But regardless, it, it really doesn't answer the question uh, uh, as to, uh, you know, what, what is too much. Um, and, uh, it was the process, not the dollars. Right. It was the process and, 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 and not the dollars here. And, and I think, you know, in fact, some guidance on that might be helpful for the plaintiffs. I think we've seen, um, you know, many, uh, um, uh, both the uh, trial court judges and uh, appellate judges dramatically slashing punitive damages awards, trying to be cautious uh, and, you know, trying to read and understand, you know, what they're supposed to do based on um, the, the State Farm v. Campbell case, and it's not entirely clear. Um, and and you know, and I think that the court was, did not want to put a bright line test on you know what is what it takes to, to properly punish and deter uh, reprehensible conduct. I think they're going to be reluctant to do that. I don't think anybody wants to see the court say you know this particular ratio is is the upper limit under any circumstances. And I think you have to look at the facts of the case in order to determine what an appropriate punishment is. Um, so, I mean, I think there's, an, uh, there's a chance that the, the court isn't going to jump back into the punitive damages um, second-guessing game anytime soon and, and sort of let this stand. And if it does, for tobacco litigation, I think it suggests that, um, uh, that the, you know, you can have, uh, you know, punitive damages that are significantly higher than, uh, than 9 to 1 ratios um, without it, you know, it, um, uh, getting a, uh, you know, immediately uh, thrown out by the U.S. Supreme Court because they could have done that, and they didn't. Professor Prince, what do you think this does for cases that are currently pending? Is it going to encourage defendants to not settle cases and uh, make plaintiffs take their cases to trial more frequently? I think it, it may have a slight tendency to do that. I, I agree with Mark Gottlieb that uh, I, I don't know whether I'd agree that this is a positive development for, for plaintiffs in tobacco litigation and, and other personal injury litigation, but I'd certainly say that it's not necessarily a negative one. I, I think it's very likely that the Oregon Supreme Court is going to send this thing back for trial. I, I'm not quite sure how they can get around the fact that there wasn't a properly instructed jury in the first uh case first go around and i don't see philip morris settling 
And I don't see the plaintiff, uh, or at least the plaintiff's lawyers, who've got so much invested now, being anxious to settle this. So, you know, it's entirely possible, uh, Mark, this case could come back to the Supreme Court again on the successiveness issue that they avoided. But I, I, I just think in general, you know, the four years intervening between this case and uh, 2003 when State Farm versus Campbell was decided, there have been dozens of punitive awards appealed. Many of those have resulted in, in a reduction in the size of awards, but in the vast majority of those cases, the ratio of punitive to compensatory damages remains greater than one-to-one -one that the Campbell Court proposed for all but extraordinary cases. And, and to me, that suggests a great reluctance on the part of state courts um, to follow at least many state courts. I, I, I agree with Mark that I think some are doing their best, but I think many are reluctant to follow the Supreme Court's guidance on punitive damages, and it, it puts me in mind of a conversation I had with a, a, a practitioner friend of mine in Texas shortly after the State Farm case was decided. I, he hadn't seen it yet, and I sort of described it to him in summary fashion. There was a brief pause on the other end of the line, and then he said, well, that's not the law in Texas. And I think that's kind of the reaction that a lot of state uh, court judges are having to the Supreme Court's um, meddling, in their view, I think, with um, state juries making punitive damage awards. So um, I, I just think this is going to stir the pot even more. I think we'll see more appeals, and uh, it's, it's going to be a while before this all sorts itself out. This case, as I said before, is certainly not the final word. Well, it's time to uh, wrap up the end of the program here. We would like to get your final thoughts, so let's turn to uh, Michael Gerhardt and uh, see if we can get your final thoughts on this case and what we're looking for from the future, along with your contact information for our listeners. Well, I certainly agree with the others that um, this is hardly the last we're going to hear from the Supreme Court on this, um, and this hardly resolves much at all. If anything, I think this is just sort of a kind of a way station uh, that the court may be sort of uh, stopping off uh, before it sort of reenters this fray, and it's been a difficult fray for the court up until now. I think it might put some onus on district judges, or I should say trial judges as well, to sort of watch out for the jury instructions. Everybody's sort of on notice about maybe being more precise or comprehensive there. Beyond that, then one other interesting thing that strikes me is that you've got the two proponents of judicial modesty in the majority here, uh, Justice Breyer and Chief Justice Roberts, really sort of have tried to sort of champion the, champion the idea of the court interfering less with other institutions, but here they, of course, interfered with the uh, the jury, uh, the all-American jury, which a lot of people, uh, as other commentators have suggested, a lot of people think is kind of almost sacrosanct. And Professor Gerhardt, how, if our listeners wanted to get find out more about you or your work, uh, where's a good place for them oh, to head? Uh, well, I'm reachable at uh, UNC, Gerhardt at UNC, email.unc.edu. And Professor Prince, how about your final thoughts and your contact information? Well, my contact information is david.prince at wmitchell.edu, and there you may find a phone number and other contact information as well as a link to my blog, and uh, I'd, I'd welcome a conversation with anybody who wants to email me or call me about this. Um, I, I, I don't know that I, I can add much uh, to what I've said before that, that we're going to, we will certainly see more of this. The one thing none of us has yet mentioned is that this is the first punitive damages case involving personal injury uh, that the court has, has dealt with. Um, the BMW versus Gore case that first set out these guideposts for determining constitutionality of punitive, punitive awards involved uh, bad faith consumer practices, and 
State Farm, uh, which elaborated on those guideposts and raised this idea of a ratio that has generated so many uh, appeals involved bad faith insurance practices. And I don't know that it, it doesn't appear to me that the fact that this is a personal injury case has um, had very much effect in, in what the court has had to say. So um, if they take this Buell Wilson versus Ford case that's on uh, uh, on appeal or, or, or which the California case in which a petition for cert has been filed, uh, they're looking at another personal injury case. So maybe that will have some influence on their thinking about due process. I, I, I doubt it, but um, we, we, we will no doubt be surprised by some additional dimensions that, that succeeding cases will bring. Um, and as I said before, I, I, it's fascinating to watch this. I think it's, it's frustrating for both uh, you know, for lawyers on both sides of these cases, not to have uh, more clear guidance. But I, I doubt very much, as Mark Gottlieb said earlier, that the court is ever going to give us a hard, bright line and say, you, you may not exceed this. Let's turn last to uh, Mark Gottlieb and get your contact information and your final thoughts. Sure. My contact information by email is mark, M-A-R-K, at phaionline.org as in Public Health Advocacy Institute, phaionline.org. Um, you know, I wonder if um, some of the uh, at least four justices that, uh, that uh, uh, voted to grant uh, certiorari on this punitive damages case um, are having uh, a buyer's remorse at this point. Uh, you know, I think they may have had different motivations. Um, some uh, maybe uh, had sort of federalist motivations, wanted to take this to get the court out of the punitive damages business. Others wanted to uh, perhaps uh, back away from um, some of the implications that uh, may have been uh, uh, drawn correctly or incorrectly from the State Farm case. Um, but we, what we ended up with, I think, really didn't um, uh, advance our understanding uh, of, of, of what is appropriate in terms of punitive damages at all. And I would see uh, a lot of, uh, you know, at least in the tobacco area, I think it's a lot of individual cases are going to be filed. Um, uh, California Supreme Court uh, decision last week sort of opened the door for those cases to, uh, to restart in California. There's uh, thousands and thousands of individual cases in Florida stemming from this uh, class action uh, that was prospectively decertified by the Florida Supreme Court last summer. And, and, uh, and I, I think in, in many of these instances, just because of the documentation about the tobacco industry's conduct, uh, is so clear that we're going to see very high punitive damages awards. and They're going to be appealed by the tobacco companies uh, to the high court. And if they're not taking these appeals, I think that sends a, a message uh, back to uh, the lower courts that uh, that you know these these awards may in fact be okay under these circumstances, and I think that may be in fact what we're going to see happening. Well, thank you very much. We have uh, before we go, we just need to uh, we're going to listen to a, a brief clip from our listener line. Uh, can we play that now? I think. Hi, uh, I am a patent professional and uh, a frequent listener to your uh, radio talk shows. And I had a suggestion regarding uh, a radio talk show on the topic of uh, outsourcing in patent prosecution. Uh, I am aware that it's, it's rapidly growing uh, right now, and more and more firms are getting into uh, outsourcing in patent prosecution. Uh, so I, w I was wondering if you would be willing to 
uh, do some kind of talk show on that. Uh, all right. I hope you do, and I look forward to listening to it. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, that was a message from our listener line. You can call that yourself at 781-634-8959. It's a good topic uh, for a future show, perhaps. Uh, thank you very much to our guests for participating today. We very much appreciate your, your very insightful comments and thoughts on this. And, uh, Craig, good to talk to you, as always, and look forward to talking to you again. We'll look forward to it next week, Bob. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.